Published in 1900, Octave Mirbeau's scandalous social critique, The Diary of a Chambermaid, has been adapted to the screen four times. First, as The Maid's Diary, a silent version from Russia in 1916. Thirty years later, as a very much watered-down Hollywood production directed by Jean Renoir. And four years ago, when Benoit Jacot directed Léa Seydoux in the title role. Naturally, each version has provided decidedly different interpretations. However, it is the 1964 version, directed by Louis Bunuel and starring Jean Moreau, which is the most radical and yet the most faithful. So, scandalous, silent, radical, faithful, what do you value most in your domestic assistant? I will be your dustpan If you'd be my broom We could work together There are plenty of such characters to choose from. Hattie McDaniel in Gone with the Wind, Judith Anderson in Rebecca, Angela Lansbury in Gaslight, Kakuro Mori in The Story of the Last Chrysanthemum, Juanita Moore in Imitation of Life, Deborah Kerr in The Innocence, Julie Andrews in Mary Poppins, Mbassine Therese Diop in Black Girl, Margit Carstensen in The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, Carrie Silwan in Cries and Whispers, Stephanie Audran in Babette's Feast, Kathy Bates in Dolores Claiborne, half the female cast from Gosford Park, Dini Eep in Sister Peach, Kim Tae-ree in The Handmaiden, and Viola Davis, Octavia Spencer and Cicely Tyson in The Help. Eat my shit. What'd you say? I said eat my shit. Have you lost your mind? No, ma'am, but you about to, because you just did. The Diary of a Chambermaid actually began life in 1891 as a serial in the daily newspaper L'Echo de Paris, a conservative publication that would veer drastically to the extreme right in the 1930s. At the time, L'Echo permitted an occasionally opposing view, in Marbeau's case, one that ever so gently mocked the Belle Epoque. The Diary of a Chambermaid claimed to be an authentic document written by a real-life chambermaid who, for legal purposes, could only be known as Celestine R. The first entry, made on September the 14th of an unspecified year, has the young chambermaid arriving by train from Paris to serve at the Lanlaire household in rural Normandy. Celestine begins by confiding that this will be her 12th appointment in less than 24 months. But her service with the family turns out to be so fractious that barely over eight weeks later, she has moved on yet again. Just why it is so fractious, we will learn in a moment. But for now, here is a clip from the heavily bowdlerized 1946 version starring Paulette Godard in the title role. I'm Celestine, the new maid. What's that you're eating? I'm starving. Will you give me some? What do you do around here? I know, you're the gardener. My heart... Uh, Say, what's this place like to work in? If I knew another one, I'd go to it. They let you wear a beard. That's about all. That Joseph's kind of bossy, isn't he? Well, he's not going to boss me around, I'll tell you that. That's his spirit. Nobody else is going to boss me around either. I found out it pays to be very tough. Well, that may be all right for you, but I don't need to go with me. <laughs> well, you just stick with me and you'll be on the right track. We'll put the masters in their places. <laughs> <laughs> Reading Mirbeau's book, it doesn't take long to figure out why, 
Bunuel was drawn to it. Celestine's memoir reads like a shopping list of all manner of social, moral, sexual and psychological hypocrisies and neuroses that the master surrealist relished. But its journey from newspaper to novel was not easy. For about a year, L'Echo de Paris was content to publish Celestine's diary. But at that point, readers, all of whom would have been resolutely middle class, conservative and Catholic, grew tired of seeing themselves and the church being satirised. And so Mirbeau was forced to put his pen to other things. An essayist, playwright, journalist, and as some of his critics claimed, an anarchist, it would not be for another nine years that Mirbeau felt compelled to return to the story. In the interim, he had not only found a new publisher, a freshly launched literary and liberal magazine, La Revue Blanche, he had also found a strong motivation to revive Celestine's diary. No longer content with gently satirising the bourgeois life, this time he took square aim at the nationalism that had erupted across France in the intervening years. Much of that nationalism was obsessed with the arrest, conviction and imprisonment of Captain Alfred Dreyfus on charges of passing secrets to the German military. The case against Dreyfus was a fabrication organised by right-wing extremists, intent on taking down the highest-ranking Jewish officer in the French army. All credible evidence indicated that the real culprit was Major Charles Valsin Esterhazy, a veteran of the Franco-Prussian War, whose career had been marked by questionable promotions and bankruptcies. Nonetheless, the ensuing scandal divided France right down the middle, pitting Republicans, Liberals and Federalists, the so-called Dreyfusars, against Royalists, Conservatives and Nationalists, whose alliance was dominated by anti-Semitic patriots. And even after Dreyfus was finally exonerated, anti-Semitic ideologues insisted that the entire episode had been a Jewish conspiracy designed to elicit sympathy and undermine both the state and the army. It is quite common that the lyrics for national anthems are written through the years, but so prevalent and virulent was French anti-Semitism at the time that xenophobes came up with their own version. Here is an English translation of that version, frequently sung at the time, performed in the 1991 TV dramatisation of the Dreyfus story, Prisoner of Honour. Be advised, it is unpleasant listening. Rise, children of the fatherland, for glory is ours by right. Hateful banners all raised against us, evil banners of tyranny. Do you hear the savage soldiers in the fields, killing our sons and our loved ones free? must take up arms, citizens. We're not safe with filthy yids around us. Destroy these filthy yids. Restore our honour and our gold. Till not one more Jew traitor stands in France, our fatherland. In bringing the novel to the screen, Bunuel decided to update the setting some 40 years from the 1890s to the 1930s. We'll see why in a moment, but for now, let us focus on the other changes the adaptation brought about. In the novel, Celestine is on the lookout for a rich man to marry. But in Bunuel's adaptation, 
Jean Moreau's chambermaid heads for the small provincial town of Saint-Aubin for no other reason that she is simply weary of Paris. Her new employer, Madame Monte, played by Françoise Lujan, is a neurotic middle-aged woman who lives an ascetic life. Her husband, played by Michel Piccoli, is a sexually frustrated faineant who assumes he has free access to Celestine's bed. While Celestine tolerates his advances, she never submits to him, and instead finds entertainment in the study of Madame Monte's father, played by Jean Ozen. It is here that the film's first surrealist inklings come into view. This eccentric, fastidious old man enjoys shooting butterflies with a shotgun, but what gives him even greater pleasure is watching Celestine parade about his study, wearing his private collection of unpolished ladies' leather boots. Eventually, he succumbs to the fetish and is found dead, naked in his bed save for the boots, the aromas of which he had been inhaling. Then Bunuel dramatically departs in the novel. Claire, played by Dominique Sauvage, is a ten-year-old girl whose mother also works in the house. The young girl goes missing, a search party is raised, and when her corpse is discovered, it is found she was the victim of sexual assault. Clearly, there is a paedophile lurking in the house. Celestine has her suspicions that it is the gardener, Joseph, played by Georges Arat. Joseph is a brutal character, misogynist and rabidly anti-Semitic. Yet, despite all that, in the novel, here is Celestine's final entry to her diary. When it comes to the point, I can't deny Joseph anything. I may occasionally rebel, but I belong to him. He possesses me like a demon. And I'm happy to belong to him. I know that I shall always do whatever he wants me to, always go as far as he tells me to, even if it means committing a crime. In finding an alternative ending, Bunuel engaged the now legendary, but then utterly untested screenwriter, Jean-Claude Carrier. At the time, Carrier had never written a feature script. He had, however, just won an Oscar for a satirical 12-minute short film, Happy Anniversary, which gently lampooned the institution of marriage, which made Carrier Bunuel's ideal creative partner. So ideal, in fact, that they collaborated on another five feature films, including Belle de Jour, that obscure object of desire, and Bunuel's own Oscar winner, the discreet charmer the bourgeoisie. Here is Carrier in 2015, being interviewed by Jonathan Romney at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, London. What is it about this novel that has somehow lasted? That's one of the possibilities. The relation between uh, servants and masters, of course. Um, a, a social interest in that sort of relation, which at the time Amir Beau was writing the book, was beginning to disappear, to go another direction. Today, all our servants in England and France come from other countries. Probably that's one, one of the reasons, but maybe there are some others, but I'm not a sociologist enough to explain, you know. Sexual perversions, maybe. <laughs> the central thesis in Mirbeau's novel is that people vested in their own interests, governed by their own obsessions, and in pursuit of their own hypocrisies are scoundrels, and should never be permitted authority of any kind. But for Bunuel, Rather than having Celestine marry Joseph, she succumbs to a different compromise when she marries Captain Moget, the army veteran living next door, and thus she merrily embraces the same pampered life of Madame Monte, which she had once scorned. Celestine has just joined the ranks. 
Evidently then, the only honest thing about hypocrisy is that it does not discriminate. But what of Joseph? He sets up a cafe in Cherbourg where he cheers on the rise of the far right. Which is why Bunuel pushed the setting for the Belle Epoque of the 1890s to the 1930s when France began to be swamped by the rise of fascism. Jean Chiap had been the prefect of police in the early 1930s, implementing extreme right-wing measures such as harassing trade unionists, socialists and what he deemed to be foreign, read Jewish, influences. A highly divisive public servant, Chiap was forced to resign on February 3, 1934, at which point his supporters on the extreme right mounted a protest. Three days later, riots broke out and it is that event to which Bunuel was referring at the end of the film. But why would Bunuel end there? Because four years earlier, in 1930, Schiap had personally intervened to ban Bunuel's film Lage d'Or. What is remarkable about almost every one of Bunuel's films is that for the master surrealist, they were always delivered in the most impeccably calm manner. The diary of a chambermaid is practically the same. The only notable difference is that for the first and only time in his career, Bunuel chose to film in Cinemascope. Which means that with the exception of his two collaborations with Salvador Dali, Un Chien Andalou and Lage d'Or, Bunuel's visual presentation was decidedly restrained. No more eyeballs being slit open. No dead horses rotting on grand pianos. No women kissing the feet of a marble statue. For Bunuel, it was the situation itself that was surreal. A group of guests find they cannot leave a dinner party and so resort to cannibalism. An 80-year-old man suffocates on the aromas of a woman's leather boots. Another group of dinner party guests are frustrated because they can never be fed. It is those situations that are surreal, not exclusively the images themselves. By contrast, consider the imagery we see in Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain, David Lynch's Eraserhead, Ridley Scott's Alien, David Cronenberg's Videodrome, Spike Jones's being John Malkovich, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, and Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. No girlfriend, really. Oh, I don't have a girlfriend at all. He's very charming. Does he come pretty? I like her gorgeous. Do you? I definitely. Good. By the time Bunuel directed The Diary of a Chambermaid, he was a veteran of 20 feature films almost all of which he had made in Mexico. He had read Mirbeau's novel several times, but when approached by Polish-born producer Serge Silberman, he initially balked at the idea of adapting the book. He preferred instead Malcolm Lowry's alcohol-soaked Under the Volcano. But when Silberman pushed for Mirbeau's novel, Bunuel agreed, but only if Sylvia Pinel played the lead. They had just made two films together, Viridiana and The Exterminating Angel the former of which had earned Bunuel the Palme d'Or at the 1961 Cannes Film Festival. However, Silverman preferred Jean Moreau. Bunuel said that would mean shooting in France and he wanted to return to Mexico. Besides, with Moreau's international stature, in recent years she had enjoyed a string of hits beginning with Louis Mal's Lift the Scaffold, followed quickly by Les Amants, also directed by Mal, Michelangelo Antonioni's La Notte, Orson Welles' The Trial, and François Truffaut's Jules et Jim, Bunuel feared his leading lady would exert more control than he. 
His worries were unfounded, and although it is the only time they ever worked together, for me, Moreau turns in not just one of the very best performances in any of Manuel's films, she also delivers one of her best. In which case, we leave the final words to Moreau, here in conversation with Charlie Rose from 2002 at the French Institute Alliance Francaise. What's the gift? The gift is to what? To do what? It is for me to accept any mysterious, unknown, provocative reactions without trying to understand. 